You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian apologetics and scholarship. Today we've got an interesting topic. We're going to be talking about what I prefer to call the after death here. And for that we're going to be talking with the author of Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory, who is Jerry Walls. Now who is he? Jerry L. Walls is scholar in residence and professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University, which I might say is coming up to be one of the fastest growing schools in Christian apologetics. He has authored or edited over a dozen books and over 80 articles and reviews. Among his books are Hell, The Logic of Damnation, Heaven, The Logic of Eternal Joy, and Purgatory, The Logic of Total Transformation. Yeah, you might have seen a theme going there, okay? The Oxford Handbook of Eschatology as well. And he's co-authored with David Baggett, Good God, The Theistic Foundations of Morality, which was named the best book in apologetics and evangelism by Christianity Day in their annual book awards in 2012. He is also a big sports fan and has done two books about basketball, Basketball and Philosophy, Thinking Outside the Paint, and Wisdom from the Hardwood, Defying a Success Worth Shooting For. So, Dr. Walls, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. And I, I can tell also you're a good man because you were getting tea before the show. Exactly. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, who you are, in case uh, some people might not know you. Well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a philosopher of religion, as you mentioned. I uh, was born and raised in Stiff, Ohio, a rough little hamlet in, in southern Ohio. Um, called to ministry... Um, I was converted at the age of 11, uh, called to preach, uh, felt a call to preach when I was 13, started preaching when I was 13 years old. Um, so I had this kind of, you know, interest in evangelism going way back to, to my boyhood. Um, as I grew older and into high school, I began to develop an interest in, in um, philosophical kinds of issues. I stumbled across a book by Francis Schaeffer one summer when I was in high school when I was just looking for something to read. It was uh, his book, Pollution and the Death of Man, which my dad had picked up at a second-hand bookstore. And I really had no interest in, in ecology, which is what the book was about, but I was kind of intrigued by it. So I read it and was just utterly, utterly um, fascinated by how he analyzed the ecology debate in terms of basic presuppositions about your fundamental worldview. And how the Christian worldview uh, you gives us good reason to take it to, to to take ecology seriously and so on. So I then started reading Francis Schaeffer, everything I could get my hands on, and uh, became fascinated with the rational side of, of Christianity. I'd been converted, as I said, at age eleven in a um, a little revivalistic church that placed a great emphasis on experience, particularly conversion experience, and which were often very emotional. Um, and, um, you know, then, then when I became interested in Schaefer for a while, I, you know, it was all about, you know, having a worldview that was right, you know, having correct beliefs and all this sort of stuff, justified beliefs. And then um, later went to seminary, uh, went to Houghton College, Princeton Seminary, Yale Divinity School, 
And it was really there that, that I kind of put the emotional and the intellectual together. I took a course uh, with uh, Paul Homer. I took a number of courses from him, actually. And one of the courses was Emotions, Passions, and Feelings. Mm-hmm. And he helped me to put my intellectual life and my emotional life together in a way that I'd not uh, been able to do successfully, altogether successfully up to that point. And then went on and pastored a church for three years and then went on to do my Ph.D. at Notre Dame and been doing academics ever since. So that's sort of um, a rundown of my autobiography. Yeah, I I can understand the thing about uh, emotions and insects. I think a lot of us in the projects community really struggle with that one. Yeah, but it's, it's, and it's very unfortunate, uh, too, because um, <clears throat> apologetics, and this is a theme that that uh, Scott Burson and I developed in a book that we wrote several years ago on, on C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer uh, called um, 21 Lessons, of, Lessons from the Most Influential Apologists for the Coming Century. And, and we emphasize that, that apologetics best practiced, and C.S. Lewis and Schaeffer both embodied this, particularly Lewis, perhaps even better, uh, apologetics is a holistic enterprise. You have to convert a whole person. You don't just convert a brain. Mm-hmm. You convert a person. Right. And, and, and you have to convert the mind in order to fully convince somebody that Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. But it's not enough to convince the mind. You've got to convert the, the emotions, the will, the heart. The whole man has got to come, you know, God, uh, come to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, mm-hmm. uh, and too often apologetics has been kind of unidimensional. It, it's given arguments but has neglected that other side. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think people make the mistake of going to the other side and thinking all you need to do, you know, is relate to people and, you know, love Jesus and, and yeah. uh, you know, all that kind of thing, and you can, and you can ignore the intellectual side. That's, that's a, also a mistake of the same variety. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into starting with talking about heaven, let's do a couple of other plugs. Also, it's worth knowing when I went through all your books that your son, Jerry, has... Uh, Jonathan, <laughs> your Johnny, son Jonathan, yeah. yeah, has also written an excellent book that I really enjoyed, uh, The Legend of Zelda and Theology. Yeah, that, that's a, that's an intriguing little book, and yeah, it was intriguing. It was interesting. You did a review of that, not even realizing he was my son uh, on that on Amazon, right? I, I think I didn't know he he was your son. I don't remember for sure, but I I grew up on The Legend of Zelda, so I thought that was so did he. Yeah. <laughs> And then you're at Houston Baptist University, and I had said that Houston Baptist is becoming one of the greatest schools for Christian projects. Could you tell us a little bit about Houston Baptist, and maybe if there are any people who are interested in Absolutely. getting a degree, what they could do? Absolutely, yeah. And, and by the way, you mentioned Johnny. Uh, we have another book coming forthcoming shortly called uh, Tarantino and Theology, in mm. which I've compiled a collection of, of theological essays on themes in, in Quentin Tarantino's movies. So I think that one's going to be fascinating as well. But to Houston Baptist University, yeah, I mean, Houston Baptist is, is really on the march. We have um, very aggressive visionary leadership and visionary leadership that takes the truth claims of Christianity seriously and thinks we need to engage culture with those truth claims. And if you believe that, you're going to have to be engaged in apologetics. So we started up an apologetics uh, master's, and we're working on moving to another one. Uh, in, in more philosophical apologetics, the one we have now is in imaginative apologetics, and uh, we have a number of, of excellent people uh, uh, in that in that program. Uh, Phil Talon is the uh, is the chairman of that department, 
um, and has written an excellent book on aesthetics and theodicy called The Poetics of Evil, mm-hmm. which is really quite good, and done a number of other essays as well. Uh, Holly Ordway uh, directs the program. Um, uh, Mary Jo Sharp, uh, excellent on-the-road apologist who's out there, you know, talking to people and, and engaging women, particularly in, in apologetic issues. Nancy Piercy, a very popular author. Um, and then we have your father-in-law, who I'm happy to say I helped recruit to Houston Baptist University and am thrilled to, to have here uh, one of the world's leading authorities on the resurrection of Jesus and working on an exciting new project uh, about the issues of uh, apparent inconsistencies in the gospel. So we've got Lacona here. We've got Bruce Gordon, yep. uh, who is a uh, philosopher of science and, and does excellent work uh, in, in that field. And uh, to top it all off, we've got, uh, you know, we've got uh, William Lane Craig mm-hmm. uh, comes in every semester. Uh, and then we have a couple of other women, uh, uh, Kristen Davis and, uh, oh gosh, I can't think, Melissa, Melissa Best. Uh, no, that's not her name. Uh, Melissa Joan Travis? Yes, 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 thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, she is also here uh, part-time as well. So we have just an outstanding group of people, all of whom are passionate about relating uh, the truth claims of the gospel seriously to contemporary culture, engaging those truth claims, defending those truth claims. So uh, if you share that vision, if, if, if you think Christianity is true, and obviously if you think it's true, you think it matters, if you share these convictions, uh, HBU is a place you need to be aware of. Yes, and I should point out, we've had some of those people on the show. I have got to interview Hardy Ordway and Mary Jo Sharp, and Mike Lacona has been on twice. We're talking about his third visit this summer, including the second time he did talk about that Plutarch research. And we've had uh, Louis Marcos on as well. Yes, Lou is also an outstanding apologist. He, he is actually in the Honors College, mm-hmm. but uh, Louis himself an outstanding apologist and an outstanding C.S. Lewis scholar. And I, and I, did I mention Michael Ward? I can't remember. Uh, Michael Ward, the noted C.S. Lewis scholar, um, who uh, wrote the, the famous book, Planet Narnia. And you've added Lee Strobel in as well. And Lee Strobel in Evangelism. Yeah, you can't even keep up with all these people. We've yeah. got so many exciting uh, people uh, added to, to our faculty, it's hard to keep up with them. That's right. Thank you for reminding me of that. Well, it's interesting, since we're going to be talking about heaven, that you have brought a glass of tea with you, which is further proof of the uh, goodness of God and heaven. Absolutely. Yeah. You got it, man. Yeah, I, we, we've got the store at the mall that we go to church at, we meet at the movie here, and we go to... I go to Tivana sometimes afterwards, and I've gone in before and said, should I take off my shoes before I come into the store here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you're talking about heaven here. Now, one thing I'd like to do is rather talk about something you talk about at the end of a book, Heaven, Here, and Purgatory, talking about heaven, that seems to come up often. And I think it's really important to start here because we need to know that heaven is something worth talking about. And so many people look at heaven and we'll say, you know, if I'm going to be up there and I'm going to be singing forever and playing a harp <clears throat> and singing on a cloud, won't I grow bored? And frankly, when I hear a lot of descriptions I get of heaven from people, I think after a while, yeah, I get bored in that heaven too. Yeah, it's really unfortunate, isn't it, uh, isn't it, Nick? Yeah. Um, uh, people have 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 been have been sold this. This pale, boring, bloodless, gutless, lifeless, ice cold vision of heaven. In fact, there was a movie uh, that came out several years ago. I think it was entitled Heaven Can Wait. 
And the basic premise of the movie was there was an angel, an angel, you know, again, this is the picture of a human being who's become an angel, sitting up there, you know, whiling his time away, bored to death in heaven. And he wanted one last fling on earth before he had to had to go back to heaven. Mm-hmm. Like it's a punishment. Yes, like being consigned to heaven is like an eternal boredom sentence. Mm-hmm. And the picture is all the excitement, all the life, all the vitality, all the energy, all the fun is down on the earth, right? And again, the implication being the devil owns the earth. Yeah. That's his territory. The devil is the one who came up with fun and dancing and joy and pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all that stuff. And God... His realm is one of boredom, lifeless, yeah. old sterility, right? Yeah. Okay. So, 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 what this really goes back to, in, in in many ways, I think, Nick, is a terrible theology of creation. Right. You can't have a good theology of salvation, including a theology of heaven, if you don't start with a good theology of creation. Mm-hmm. So, if you've got a good God who created this world, so God is the one who created pleasure. Mm-hmm. God right. is the one who laughter. God is the one who created, you know, uh, uh, delight and, and, and taste buds and, and, and everything else about, about our lives that make them meaningful and joyful. And indeed, this incredible universe with all of its beauty and colors and, and sights and sounds and tastes, God invented that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And if God made this, how much more amazing and fascinating is He than His incredible creation about which we've only begun to scratch the surface to understand even the creation. Right. Right? Uh-huh. So, so, again, uh, another, another confusion here um, that, that has been so prevalent in, in much theology, and this includes a lot of classical theology as well, you know, is, that, is, is, is heaven is about going to heaven, leaving this old sinful world and these old bodies behind. You know, the picture often the soul goes Oh, there. yes. Right? That's the picture. Right. Uh, I, I cringe whenever I hear someone saying like "I'll fly away" or something. Right, right. I'll, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Again, the idea is leaving all this all behind mm-hmm. and going off, you know, to heaven, which is completely now. Of course, what 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 a number of theologians like like M.T. Wright and, and people like that uh, have really helped us rediscover and recover is the conviction that heaven is coming down to earth. So when you read that uh, majestic, glorious picture of heaven in Revelation 20 and 21, the holy city comes down to earth. God comes down to be with us, to live with us. And you have this this picture of Eden restored. So Mm -hmm. heaven is not about fleeing this earth, getting away from this earth, leaving these old bodies behind. It's about restoring, renewing this earth resurrecting our bodies and restoring us to the kind of life that God intended us to have in the beginning. It seems when we talk about heaven, we make a lot of mistakes because we put the emphasis on the wrong place. I mean, you and I, for instance, are both (coughs) big tea guys. Now, we could say, for instance, that uh, you should drink tea because it's a healthy drink and it's good for you. And it's better than coffee. What's that statement you just quoted me a while ago? Tim McGrew has said that... uh, Tea, that coffee was created to lead by the devil to lead us away from tea. Uh, so, uh, that McGrew is a very insightful yeah. guy on a lot of things, and, and that's another one right yeah. there. Oh, yes. Uh, we could say, yeah, it's healthy, it's good for you, but that... It just it, tastes better. I mean, I don't know why anybody drinks coffee. Yeah, but the, the thing is, it's tasting better, we could say, is it's an, that's an accident of tea. God didn't have to make tea so that it tasted good. For, yeah. But, and 
for any food, it did not have to taste good. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said God could create a world black and white, and it would work just way, and God could have made it that we had to reproduce through sexuality. He didn't have to make it such a funky good time for us. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And so yeah. when we look at heaven, it seems like we say, well, you'll see your loved ones, you'll live forever, you won't have pain and sorrow, and those are all good, but it's missing the real deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it's not just a matter of negating sin, it's about affirming the good. And the good is, first of all, first and foremost, uh, obviously a perfected relationship with God, who, as I noted just a moment ago, if his creation is this extraordinary and fascinating, right. just think how much more extraordinary and fascinating he is who created yep. this stuff, right? And and so so you get this picture of, of you know, and and I suggest in my Heaven book, uh, the one, the Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory book you, you were talking about today, yeah. that, that we have these glimpses of the face of God even now. So, so I think everybody can relate to these kinds of experiences. In fact, my son, uh, Johnny, is, is, a big, uh, is a big tea fan, a big tea lover as well. Good for him. You raised him right. Raised him right, yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, he, he commented to me not long ago that, that he made one of those cups of tea that you, it was so good you just wished it could go on forever. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And, and, and Johnny's actually you know, confessed to me that he sometimes had this fear of boredom, that heaven could be boring. And then he had a dream uh, not so long ago in which he said he was eating this food and he couldn't really put it into words. But he said it was kind of like raspberry. And again, it was so exquisitely, wondrously delicious and delightful. He didn't want it to end eating it. It just wanted to go on forever. Now, now we have these moments. We have these moments where things are just perfect. You know, the the, the love, you know, uh, looking in the eyes uh, uh, of a beloved, seeing a beautiful sunset, uh, watching a a game in which your team wins and everything comes out exactly the way. You know, you just have these moments where everything is right. Did C.S. Lewis call that Zangzook? Yes, 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 yes. You, You have those glimpses where things are just perfect and you wish it could stay this way forever. It could go on right. forever. And so, and so I think what, you have, what we'll have in heaven is those are glimpses we have in the face of God even now. In heaven, we'll see that everywhere. Peter Kraft has talked about this if he argued for desire about the Zane's experience. He says when you have that experience, you can't wear that experience to come. Right. That experience comes on some way. He says, but when you have that experience, it, it's so joyful. And at the same time, there's a part of you that's saying, Oh, there has to be more than this. And you know, if you have a desire for something like hunger or for food, water, or desire for water, desire for sex, and you're not getting it, and you don't know if you're going to get it, so that desire is painful. Right. But he says this desire it's pleasurable. Right, right, right. And mm-hmm. and and as, and as you just suggested, you know, you can't decide to have these experiences. You can't simply say, "All right, I'm going to have one of these perfect moments." Mm-hmm. Right. That they, they come unbidden, they're out of our yeah. control, they come as gracious gifts, and as I say, we yeah. feel this deep sense of gratitude and, and realize that something has been given to us. And again, I, I think that's very much an intimation, a foretaste of heaven, the ultimate gracious gift where God gives us our, our heart's desires all the way to the bottom of our hearts. Yeah, Christ has also said that everything we see here is a pointer to even either heaven or hell. We could consider it spiritual foreplay, as it were. Yeah, or maybe purgatory. Right. <laughs> now, could it be even that we don't get excited and care so much about heaven many times because we don't care so much about this life? 
I, I think that's I think that's uh, um, is probably true. Um, people who are bored with this life, you know, who who find nothing restful, mm. nothing worth living for, nothing exciting. Uh, yeah, pro- probably are the, are, are the very people who think this, and and I think this is probably very much a a, a, a phenomenon of our particular time and place. In fact, um, according to a, a book uh, on the history of heaven that I just recently read, the idea of fear of boredom didn't really come into play until like after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea being this: once people achieve leisure, once people you know, uh, are not just toiling away for the necessities of life and and feeling under, you know, great stress and pressure. Um, And more and more, uh, as you have an entertainment culture, you know, people, you know, kids buy these video games are fascinated with them. You like, like you said, Zelda, you know, you were raised, my son, you know, also loves these, loves this stuff, played these games growing up, you know, and you think, all right, I beat this game. Well, where's the next one? Right. Right. And the idea is you've got this spectacular, super spectacular games and movies with these super sensational sights and sounds and so on, and you just sort of get sated. Yeah. And so I think there's there's this fear that all right, everything's going to eventually end this way. We're gonna we're gonna everything's going to bottom out mm-hmm. uh, and the like. And and so so if you've lost the capacity to enjoy things, you know, if you say well, you know. I just had a great cup of Assam, but you know I really never have a desire to have another. No, I I want another cup. Yeah. I mean I, I'm I'm enjoying one right now even as we speak, and uh, before the day's over I'm looking forward to have another great cup of tea and and probably a couple more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know and, and and having the capacity to renew pleasure, having the capacity. G.K. G. Chesterton's got this uh, great passage where he talks about little children. One of the great things about little kids is they say, do it again, do it again. They have no idea of a monotonous. Yes, yes, yes. They, they have no sense of monotony. And, and, and he said, our Father, you know, in heaven, perhaps we've fallen so far from him, and every morning he watches the sun, he makes the sun go up and says, do it again, do it again. Yep. You know, so, so yes, I, I, I think, I think uh, a big part of it is developing our own ability of appreciation and gratitude and having uh, a sense of abil- uh, of, uh, uh, of appreciation and gratitude is what enables us to enjoy things. But again, I think God's got all kinds of of um, things up his sleeve that we have no idea uh, to keep us endlessly fascinated and, and, and delighted. Yeah, one thing I'm thinking <clears throat> about with that right now is <clears throat> I, uh, I co-lead a men's group at our church on Sunday night. And last night was just me leading it, and I told him I've had this this question in my mind, and it, it's really not because you were coming on the show. I was just thinking about this one night on my own, and the question was, why aren't we happy? And I said, you know, happiness—it's right there. It's a choice. It's right within our grasp every time. And I said, I honestly think, me, Thomas, we're scared to be happy because if we're happy, we have to relinquish control in many ways. We have to be vulnerable, and we have to admit the dread thing we don't want to admit. We're not God. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and again, we can't make ourselves happy. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I, I think people often are afraid to embrace happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I think, I think people think happiness is unspiritual uh, to seek happiness is unspiritual, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, it, it's it's really unfortunate the the notion of happiness 
has been sort of uh, subverted uh, uh, and perverted in, in, in many ways and become a very superficial thing. It's like it's all about me. I just right. I just want to be happy. In contemporary parlance, means I want to do whatever it takes to, yep. to make myself happy. Uh, I don't care who I have to step on, what you know principles I have to mm -hmm. violate, what compromises I've made. I just want to be happy, and, and it's become a it's become an utterly self centered thing. Well, happiness has a much deeper uh, history has a much deeper significance in the history of philosophy and theology, uh, and it's the notion of a genuinely, deeply moral sense of fulfilling our nature, fulfilling the purpose for which we're created, and to be sure, that kind of happiness is far more uh, subjectively satisfying than the self-centered, grasping kind of mm -hmm. consumerist notion yeah. of happiness that's out there. But yes, I think we should frankly admit, and, and, and greatest Christian thinkers and the greatest philosophers, I mean, going clear back to Aristotle, Aristotle said, happiness is the one thing that everybody seeks. It's the one thing that's self-sufficient. John Wesley said, who can blame you for seeking happiness? It is the very end for which God created us. Pascal is full of stuff like this, commenting on the human quest for happiness. So, mm. yeah, we, we shouldn't be ashamed of it. I mean, Christians need to recapture and forthrightly affirm that we were made for happiness. Because if you think God is good, if you think he is loving, why in the world would you not think he wants us to be happy? Yeah. Now again, yeah. you know there are superficial, self-centered, you know, versions of this happiness, but uh, there's a very deep, profound version of it, and we should forthrightly affirm that and celebrate. You know, one of the problems I think we have here is uh, Ben Witherington wrote a book for the rest of life. Where he talks about issues that Christians don't really discuss and trying to get what we can out of a Bible about them, and one of them was play. He said there was only one Christian he knew of who'd written a dissertation on the topic of play and usually it seems Christians look down on doing anything that's just fun and pleasurable for its own sort because you know hey uh, you could be uh, reading the Bible or you could be doing some evangelism or you could be going to the soup kitchen and helping out doing things like that why would you waste your time with playing but isn't that really a, a great mistake on our part because yeah we should do those other things but God made us for that pleasure too that sounds we just need to have fun Absolutely, absolutely, and, and and the bottom line is all those other things they only have urgency because we live in a fallen world, mm -hmm. and so because we live in a fallen world, yeah, uh, that that that's one of the things you can never play without an awareness that hey, while I'm sitting here playing and enjoying myself, there are people around the world, you know, getting their heads cut off and getting their yeah. limbs hacked off and and dying and starving and, and suffering and various things like that. So so play in a fallen world always has that shadow of it. Doesn't mean we should never do it, and indeed we should do it. Uh, but but do it, you know, recognizing that hey, ultimately this is what it's all about. The world right. that we're ultimately aiming for is a world where people don't get their heads cut off, where mm -hmm. there is no compromise with the play. The play will be the thing. And in fact, uh, uh, planning is two dozen or so theistic arguments, uh, a project that I, uh, I I mentioned to you. I can't remember what we're talking about here, or actually before we, we got on the air. In which uh, we're thinking about having you come back on to talk about later on. Yeah, exactly. One of planning is two dozen arguments for God's existence is an argument from play. And mm -hmm. uh, my colleague here at HBU is, in fact, writing the essay. Phil Talon is writing the essay on that, mm -hmm. uh, that argument. Okay. So, so, yes, it, it, it's very important. God is a playful God. Uh, and again, this is part mm -hmm. of what C.S. Lewis was so good at capturing, you know, the, the, the humor, the, the, the delight, the smile, the laughter. And if you can't do that, if you can't see that even in a fallen world, 
uh, we're blind to what it's all about because it's not all about the fallenness. And, and again, some people get so caught up with crucifixion that they have no sense of resurrection. It's almost like they yeah. feel guilty to talk about resurrection as if it's all, all about the cross. No, the cross is what love looks like in a fallen world. Yeah. But ultimately, what we hope for and aspire to is love in an unfallen world, in a perfectly redeemed world. And that's the word where play will be the predominating thing. Yeah, when I was in Bible college, I got to do a sermon during my senior year to the entire student body. And my sermon was all about wonder. And I took as one of my themes, the Moody Magazine had had a cover story recently, and it was, Is it right to enjoy my life? Isn't that sad? Right. Right, I, I, exactly, exactly, and 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 the very fact that the question has to be asked again mm-hmm. does reflect how so many Christians have sort of taken the fallen world as normative, taken the cross as normative, not the resurrection also, and again, the cross is what, you know, love looks like in a fallen world, right? Right. But it's not, it's not pre-Trinity, it's not pre-fallen world, I mean, the eternal Trinitarian dance is not a dance of crucifixion, right? Right. That's what love looks like in a fallen world, and and, and again, we have we have so allowed uh, the fallen world to become normal that uh, that we have lost sight of the pre-fallen world and the eschatological world, the kingdom come, heaven come down yeah. to earth. We anticipate as as the great end of the story. Mm. Um, yeah. So so so, and again, it's almost like uh, people have a guilty. They 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 feel guilty because. Yeah. They, they bought this idea that, hey, the world is the devil's world, you know, God's all about ignoring this, flying away from it, fleeing it, etc., you know. When you talked about the things that you think God has in store for us, C.S. Lewis also had a great way of putting, it's like he said, imagine a little boy who thinks chocolate is the greatest good, which many little boys very well could, yes. and he can imagine having a good time about chocolate. And right. then he's got an older brother who tells him about the joys of lovemaking. And he says, do you eat chocolate doing it? Right. Which, uh, of course, some people say, well, maybe sometimes. But if you haven't seen Seinfeld, yeah, but, you know, maybe. Yeah, but, but, but he says the little boy can't imagine this greater pleasure because he can't imagine something being pleasurable without chocolate, not realizing that the two lovers have something much more pleasurable on their minds that chocolate pales by comparison. And then C.S. Lewis says, what if it's the same way with heaven, that the greatest pleasures we have here, because a lot of people have asked, will there be sex in heaven, can't compare to what's waiting there. Right, exactly, exactly. And and, uh, one of the themes that I emphasize throughout the book is that heaven is in every way a step up, Mm-hmm. Not step down. <laughs> there, there is there is no joy in this life that that we are thinking. Oh man, now I'm up in heaven. I really miss this. That there will be that there will be nothing to be missed. Everything will be better. Everything will be an enhancement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you know, chocolate is the greatest pleasure. Uh, uh, certainly blind to to greater, more amazing, uh, astounding pleasures that we have yet to conceive of. So, yeah. you know, we don't want to be the little boy who thinks chocolate is it. Enjoy the chocolate now, but recognize it's a foretaste and it's anticipation. It's pointing to something bigger, better, and grander. You know, that's something that's also, when I've talked with people about, say, the Muslim version of heaven, which happens to be uh, 70 versions and in the stream, to which I've said, and for many women, that's their version of hell right there. <laughs> I said, you know, it looks to me like Muhammad, all he did was take the highest good here and 
switched it up to heaven. And I think, you know, that's not striking about the biblical picture. The biblical picture tells so little about what it's going to be like in many ways. And it gives me the impression of saying it's saying it because I can't begin to explain this to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh, and, and again, I, I, I go back to that. I go back to that passage in, in Revelation 21 and 22, where we do have, I, I think, some really interesting uh, pictures. And, and Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, um, you know, has made the case, I think, quite impressively that, that uh, there's a lot more uh, about heaven in the Bible. God has given us a lot more information about this than a lot of people recognize. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I certainly, I certainly agree that um, you know we can't but engage in a certain amount of speculation. God doesn't tell us everything you know yeah. that we'd like to know, and doesn't fill in all the all the uh, gaps for us. But um, I, I think Scripture gives us uh, some some pretty good indications and some some pretty important details as to what we can anticipate in heaven. Well, yeah. it, it does give us some. I don't doubt me. It says no pain, no sorrow. You'll be in the presence of God, which is a place of holiness and such. But when you get to the nitty gritty specific details then I think it's kind of easy that well I'm not going to let you in on that you just have to wait and see yeah 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 uh, I, I, I find very suggestive one of the uh, one of the descriptions of heaven uh, that I find very suggestive is is the passage in Revelation where it talks about uh, the gates of heaven being open and uh, the glory of the nations being brought in into heaven Right now, that, right. that that would suggest to me that the greatest cultural products of the human race uh, will be part of heaven, mm-hmm. right? So, right. so, so the most amazing music, the most amazing architecture, the most amazing art uh, will be brought into heaven, and the cultural mandate that human beings were given at the very beginning uh, will see this fulfilled, and perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, this will be an ongoing activity. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. the greatest. Paintings have yet to be painted. The greatest music is yet to be composed. The greatest novels yeah. have yet to be written. Uh, maybe the greatest cup of tea to be brewed is yet to be brewed. Oh, um. wow. <laughs> yeah. And also, it, it's important for us to think God tells us about this great joy in many, many different ways because we all have many different interests. Uh, I mean, my wife and I can be very, very different in this regard, I will walk into a bookstore and I would just be so thrilled and ecstatic. Aside from too many Christian bookstores, I have junk out there on the shelves that makes me sick. But for me, when I see we, the bookstores, like oh my gosh, there is so much here, and I want to read and get so much out of it. Uh, if uh, you told my wife that heaven will be some like an eternal place of learning over and over, oh gosh more books I'm already surrounded by enough of them <laughs> meanwhile she's a big music person I mean I'll be taking her to some band practice tonight where she's learning the bass and now I'm there you know maybe after about half an hour or an hour it's like okay uh, I've heard enough for now she could keep going on and on and <laughs> d- d- does that tell us anything about heaven our different loves that we have I think it abs- I think it absolutely does, namely that our individuality will not be lost in heaven and and part of what part of what makes us uh, unique is that we perceive things we we perceive glimpses of beauty that other people do not perceive, and indeed part of what may may happen in heaven uh, you know is that she will enable you to see the beauty of music that you perhaps don't see here on earth, and maybe you will help her see the beauty of of books mm. that she doesn't see on earth. Uh, who knows who knows but 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 the point of the matter is the learning there will not be uh drudgery you know so many so many people associate learning 
with just some kind of laborious enterprise, but to discover things that are intrinsically interesting, mm -hmm. intrinsically fascinating, intrinsically fun and the like. That's the sort of thing that I think all rational people mm -hmm. uh, can, can feel can feel the force of uh, right. and the beauty of. And so, so when you take away the idea of learning, and you, again, you take away the drudgery of it, the schoolmasterly aspect of it, and 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 see learning as something that is joyful, having your eyes open to see beauty. Oh yeah, to see truth, and 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 mm -hmm. truth is its own beauty. Uh, again, it's got a fascination about it. That um, that uh, I think uh, I think we will find enormously appealing and exciting. Granted, it also be one of the reasons we wonder about heaven and don't see the appear is because we also have a low view of God. But we kind of think of him as, I mean, I think that God is unchanging, for instance. But then we can't pose us thinking we can view him as static and boring in that sense. And God doesn't excite us. Yes, 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 yes. And, and in fact, and in fact, um, you know. Uh, a lot of a lot of times, traditional pictures of heaven have kind of amounted to this notion of a kind of a static, timeless vision of God. It's just kind of this timeless experience of bliss. And again, uh, you know, the, we have these moments like this where, where we are just utterly enraptured and we have no sense of time. So I, I'm not discounting that a, a, at all. But again, what I think is sometimes lost is just the notion, if you think of it this way, that there's an infinite number uh, of sides of God. To, to reveal and it's like it's like a good love relationship okay so yeah. so I, I I assume you know you have learned a lot of things about your wife over the years you didn't know the first oh yes month of your marriage and you're still learning things about about your wife in fact one of, one of my friends said to me the other day uh, one of my good friends who I actually uh, helped uh, introduce him to his wife they're coming up on their 10th anniversary this year mm. and uh, I was visiting him a week ago and um, and he said to me, you know, I can honestly say I, I love her more now than I did 10 years ago on the night we got married. Yeah. And, and, and I, I found that deeply moving, and, and, and it was really good because she wasn't even there. She was out of town, so it wasn't like, you know, trying to win any points, apparently, or anything like that. It, right. it seemed utterly sincere and heartfelt. But, but the point of the matter is, I, I think the best loving relationships do have this growing tendency where you grow together, you, you, you learn more about each other, you see new sides of, of, of the person that you come to love, respect, and appreciate. Now, if you can do that with a human being, okay, just imagine the ultimate lover who has yeah. ultimate, fascinating, wonderful, beautiful, delightful sides of himself to reveal that he can literally reveal to us for eternity. Jonathan Edwards has a great sermon um, uh, which which I, I actually only discovered recently. I, 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 I wish I would have read it before I wrote my book, actually. Uh, it's called Heaven is a World of Love. And it's just this absolutely beautiful picture uh, of heaven as this society of love, not only among human beings loving each other and perfectly reciprocating the love and everybody fully appreciating each other and, and returning the love. And, you know, uh, in, in the, so there's no you know, frustration of unrequited love there in, in, in the way we often experience here. But again, God is the ultimate lover, you know. So starting with the fact that we will see and understand the love that Christ displayed for us on the cross. Now we get glimpses of this and are moved by it now, but yeah. we'll probably begin to fathom the depth of the love that God displayed for us in the death of Christ on the mm -hmm. cross. Uh, Edward said we'll see that, we'll understand that. And that's just the beginning of, of how God will be revealing himself to us in eternity 
and ever more disclosing the depth of riches of who he is and making us ever more uh, deeply in love with him and with each other as, 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 eternity, as eternity goes. Yeah, I, I think the analogy of marriage is a really good one for us today because, like many men, when it comes to my wife, I can't get enough. And so, but how much a, more with God? Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. Yeah, and, and if that's what we do here, what more do we do with God? Because I, I, marriage is the ultimate analogy given to our relationship with God. Exactly, and and uh, by the way, Alvin Plantinga, in his uh, great book *Warranted Christian Belief*, mm-hmm. talks about talks about heaven and and God loving us, and uh, you know, talking about God loving us as a bride, mm-hmm. bride. We're His bride, and and there's like an erotic dimension. You know, God is excited to love us. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so again, the the, the 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 dimension of erotic love and and that fascination that you feel with the person toward the person and the delight you feel with them that's the way God loves us mm-hmm. and 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 when you have infinite resources and infinite power and you love someone just imagine what it's like to be loved by someone with infinite resources who delights to make us happy and fulfilled oh yeah but, you know, heaven is a wonderful topic to talk about, but unfortunately we have to talk about painful topics here. How can there be such a great place of love and happiness and joy when we know people are going to be living forever in hell? Doesn't that kind of cancel it out? Well, uh, you know, that's, that's actually one of the best arguments uh, for universalism. You know, so I'm sure you're aware of mm-hmm. Is a growing tendency, a uh, growing trend in, in evangelical circles. And in fact, I'm I'm going to be speaking this summer at Fuller uh, for the re uh, 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 on on a conference about hell, um, rethinking hell conference. And uh, the universalists and the annihilationists are going to be taking on each other. And I'm going to be there defending the the eternal hell view, the uh, that, that view both of them. But but yeah, a lot of people argue. Okay, look, if if anybody's in hell, and this is the essence of the argument. It goes clear back at least to Schleiermacher. If anybody's in hell, nobody can be in heaven. And the idea, basically, being, if you're in heaven, you love everybody. I mean, a perfectly glorified, sanctified, holy person loves everybody. And the very idea that there's anyone in hell would compromise your happiness. And and indeed, the reality is that whoever's in hell is going to be related to somebody. And somebody in heaven, in all probability, uh, mm-hmm. and the like. So some of the people in hell will be personally related to to people in heaven, um, relatives, good friends. And again, even if they're not, if you're in heaven, you love everybody and could not help but but regret this. That's a really hard question, Nick. In fact, I, it, it's one of the hardest ones uh, of all. Right. And and the best sense I can make of it, you know, and there've been various people who suggested, well, look, maybe God will just you know, we we won't be aware of anybody in hell. Maybe you know, uh, no, we just won't know about anybody being lost. That strikes me as very problematic because it would involve God like erasing from our memories. You know, a big part of you know. So so again, imagine the person that's in hell is your beloved child. You know, you're you got four kids and one of them's in hell or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how, how could you have all the memories of this child simply taken away from your memory banks? And still be able to have any kind of coherent sense of your memories of everybody else, right? I, I, I'm thinking, I think C.S. Lewis had it in uh, The Voyage of a Dawn Treader. It was in one of his movies where Lucy is very jealous about everything Susan has. 
and she's given a this experience and she's with her brothers and she's getting photographed and, and she says well what about Susan and we say who and we realize that she's not there and I'm saying all of a sudden I've got everything she wants but it doesn't matter because she's been erased from here yeah 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 and and uh, you know Lewis Lewis took this question on you know uh, head on and 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 again I, I think his his solution to it is about as good as any that I've read and he basically says this, um, those who are in hell are there because they will not repent. Mm-hmm. They will not embrace the joy of heaven. And, and it's not that they've been consigned there against their wishes. It's not that they're held there against their will. They are the ones who will not repent. They're like the older brother in the prodigal son who won't come to the party, mm-hmm. right? So Lewis says, basically, this is the choice we've got to we've got to face. Either the day comes in which the makers of misery can no longer, you know, hold hostage uh, heaven, you know, or or we have to simply uh, uh, come to terms with with them having, uh, you know, the ability to blackmail the universe. Mm. So either they blackmail the universe, or the day will come when they lose the power to do that. And and he said he said people in hell are like are like a dog in the manger and I don't know if you know this phrase but I remember hearing this growing up as a kid actually knock on the stiff I never heard it yeah a, a dog in the manger and Lewis uses this phrase as I say at, at the end of the Great Divorce uh, a dog in a manger is like the manger is where you put the cow food the, the hay mm-hmm. cows to eat a dog in a manger would sit on the hay now he didn't want to eat the hay himself but by sitting on the hay. He kept the cows from eating eating the food. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is, are you going to allow a dog in the manger to be the tyrant of the mm-hmm. universe? That's mm-hmm. the question. The, the, so I refuse to come to the party. I refuse to come to heaven. I refuse to be happy. And no one else can be happy except on my terms, unless I repent and come home. Yeah. Well, obviously, that's an intolerable situation that evil should have that kind of power. So I think the idea is this, in heaven we will see with clarity, with moral clarity, the nature of evil. We will regret those choices, but at the same time, we will have to, because precisely because we have moral clarity and a moral attitude, we cannot allow evil to blackmail the universe. We can't allow evil to, to be a dog in a manger and refuse to eat the food that they themselves will not eat. So. That's a tough question. It's like I say. It's 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 to me one of the most difficult questions of all, and and it's uh, it's it's probably one of the most forceful arguments in favor of universalism because it does mean the happiness in heaven is not as perfect as it could be, but it may be the best creatable happiness. I mean, I mean, if you know mm-hmm. the difference between a possible world and a creatable world, mm-hmm. possible world is a, is, a, is, a, is a possible way things could be, and I would think the best possible world would be a world in which everybody repents. But it may not be a creatable world. If God creates free beings and gives them the choice to love him or not, some people may choose to reject him. So among the creatable worlds, uh, there may not be one in which everybody repents. And so, you, so it's the best creatable world. And again, uh, it will not spoil the happiness of heaven, uh, but indeed that there will certainly be in heaven perhaps the regret. You, you, you regret that these people will not come to the party. Mm-hmm. Now, when you've said that, it's brought to mind another objection here because you're a very <clears throat> outspoken critic of Calvinism, and I don't well, want to make no. the 
<laughs> yeah, I don't want to make this show about Calvinism, but you know, in Calvinism, God predestines you to believe, and He empowers you to believe somehow. But since you don't take that route, then I'm wondering what you would say to some atheists I've seen lately say, if God wanted me to believe, God knows what it would take to convince me to believe. But he doesn't do this. Therefore, there can be no good God because a good God would want me to believe. Yeah, I, I agree that God would want you to believe. Um, what, isn't, what is less clear, and indeed I think it's false, is that God can cause everybody to believe with your freedom intact. And indeed, I, 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 say, I, I, think, I think moral freedom includes the ability to, to reject the truth. So some people say, well, you know, uh, uh, God, God can give everybody compelling evidence, right? Mm -hmm. right. Uh, Thomas Talbot argues along, along these lines. Uh, Robin Perry, another evangelical universalist, argues along these lines. You know, that, that God can give you a vision of truth that is so clear that, that it would certainly induce anybody to repent. Now, I think that's precisely the point of the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so, so the story of the rich man and Lazarus, of course, the rich man is in hell and uh, sees Abraham, uh, sees Lazarus up, up in Abraham's bosom and uh, requests a drink of water. And then he makes the interesting request, could you send Lazarus to my brothers to warn them so they won't come to this place? Now, what's interesting about that is, on the face of it, it appears to be merely an act of mercy and compassion on his brothers, but I think on deeper reflection, Nick, mm -hmm. what is implied here is a kind of, a, a, of an act of self-justification, okay? So what he's implying in that question is, make sure my brothers, you know, are properly informed so they won't come here, and implicit in that is, and if I'd been better informed, I wouldn't be here either. Mm, interesting. Now, 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 what is really what is really interesting is the answer that is given to them. They have Moses and the prophets. No, and he says, but if someone appears rises from the dead, they'll believe. He says, no, no, that's not the case. They have Moses and the prophets. If they won't if they won't accept that revelation, they wouldn't accept the more compelling one that, that you're looking for. So, so what this man, the rich man, was actually saying is, give me a compelling revelation that is undeniable. And the answer is. They've got a perfectly good revelation. They're not responding to the truth they've got. Yeah. You know, I, I find this interesting. Uh, skeptics like uh, Peter Bogosian has complained about uh, how Christians need to set a standard by which their faith could be falsified. And I have no problem with that. That's just fine. I mean, he says, if you ask me what argument would convince me, he says, well, you know, if I walked, he said, I'm going to borrow something from Lawrence Krauss. If I walked outside and all the, store, the stars in the sky came together to spell out the words, I am Yahweh, believe in me, and everyone else in the world saw this in their own language, then that would be suggestive to me. It wouldn't be convincing yet because we could all be suffering a delusion. And that's telling me, you know, that tells me at this point already that no matter what argument I come to you with for the existence of God, you are going to reject it because you've decided God has to do something special for you before you're going to believe it. Right, right. You, you, have to, you have to have something clearer than God himself has given us in creation and raising Jesus from the dead uh, and, and, and things along this line. Yeah, I, I remember uh, years ago when I was at Princeton Seminary, 
Alvin Flanagan was lecturing at Princeton University, and I went to, to hear the lecture, and there was a graduate student there along the same line, you know, who stood up and, and uh, made the similar kind of a claim, you know, write it across the sky, you know, do this, you know, make it utterly clear, right? Mm. And, and, and again, Pascal, you know, has some real, really brilliant things to say about the hiddenness of God. Mm-hmm. And, and Pascal's, Pascal's whole point is, is just this. God is not simply interested, and again, this goes back to, the, to, what, to what we said about apologetics earlier on. Mm. Apologetics is about converting a whole person. Right. God's not simply about overwhelming your, your brain with cognitively self-evident you know, kind of material. God mm. wants to win your heart. Right, yeah. When your heart, and and it's kind of like it's kind of like you know the, the 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 poor the poor girl you know that the, the the prince is in love with, and he wants to win her heart. But if he comes out as a prince and wins her heart, you know he uh, you know she may be responding not to him but to his wealth and power and all this kind of stuff. Right. So so what does he do? He he uh, wins her by appearing as himself, you know, a poor boy, a peasant boy. That's how he he truly wins her heart, and then mm. he discloses who he really is. Right? He's he's the prince, and and the incarnation is like that. Right? The incarnation, Jesus came among us in humility, and yet he was raised from the dead, which demonstrates the power, and yet. The resurrection, you know, is the sort of thing that even though there's very good evidence, as your father-in-law has so brilliantly uh, argued, mm-hmm. right? Right. Okay, you can still you can still raise objections. You can still say, well, this is not beyond rational dispute. There's 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 grounds for 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 being disputed, uh, doubtful about this. And so Pascal, you know, comes back and says, those who do not love the truth say it's disputed. Yeah. Right. And so and so you've got to want it to be true. And so this is a question I always like to. To raise to people when I talk on you know secular campuses, I often like to to start with this question: Would you like for Christianity to be true? Would you like this to be the truth? Mm-hmm. Do you want it to be the truth? And often people will will say, "Well, no, I don't. You know, I don't want it to be true. You know, and this kind of thing." And then I'll often spell out a little more. I say, "Say, look, would you like it to be true that ultimate reality is love?" Okay, well, that's what the doctrine of Trinity says. Would you like it to be the case that somebody loves you perfectly, knows you perfectly, knows you with all your failures, your flaws, your your your, your, your every every one of the most shameful, embarrassing things you've ever done? He knows about it, and he loves you perfectly, nevertheless, and has the power to love you to to empower you to love that way yourself. Would you like that to be true? Well, that's what the doctrine of incarnation and atonement say are true. Would you like it to be the case that love is stronger than death? Well, that's what the doctrine of resurrection says is true. Would you like good to triumph over evil, right? Justice. Mm-hmm. For, well, that's what the doctrine of final judgment says is true. Would you like this to be true, right? Mm-hmm. Here's right. the point. If you want something to be true, okay, your attitude toward the evidence is very different than if you don't want it to be true. Mm-hmm. And the point of the matter is, a rightly disposed heart should want this to be true, and if you're if you have a rightly disposed heart who is not committed, you know, on principle to atheism and and the like, and uh, to uh, a standard of evidence that you would not expect on other kinds of ancient events, there's good enough evidence. There's, yeah. it, it's there, and so again, God is not simply interested in overwhelming our intellect in a way that removes our ability to freely respond in love. He wants us to respond in love like the prince and the girl the, and the peasant maiden. You know, one of the things I was thinking about the objections is it makes it look like God is just interested in mere intellectual assent 
Right. Where you believe in something I tell people is God is not interested in making converts. Nothing in the Bible says go forth and make converts. Right. He's interested in making disciples. Disciples. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you know, Jesus says again, you know, if you love me you will you will you will recognize the doctrine. You will know the doctrine. Um mm-hmm. you, you you will see it to be true. So so yeah, I, I think I think that's a question and um I think I think if someone says, No, I don't want this to be true uh, if you don't want that picture I just sketched out to be true, I don't think you know virtually any piece of evidence would convince you. On the other hand, if you would like that to be true, if you find the beauty and appeal of that, uh, then I, I, I think there's I think there's plenty of evidence. Um, and again, that's not saying you know that, that that you that wishful thinking is involved, that you convince yourself something is true when there's not good evidence. There is good evidence for it, but right. it's not the kind of evidence that will simply overwhelm someone whose heart is absolutely uh, opposed to it. When uh, we were talking also about the thing about does hell have veto power over heaven, you did mention you're <clears throat> going to be speaking at Rethinking Hell, and you're going to be arguing against universalism and annihilationism. Well, right. that's like a annihilationism, because annihilationism just say, hey, that's not a problem, because God's just going to destroy those people. Anyway, why do you reject annihilationism? Well, I reject annihilationism in the first place uh, because I, I I think it's going against the tradition, and uh, I think the the overwhelming consensus um, of the church. And again, there are exceptions, and uh, Glenn Peoples uh, has convinced me that there are at least reasons to think that some of the church fathers may have may have held annihilation so mm-hmm. that there may be more of a tradition uh, for that than I than I uh, than I've uh, previously thought but it's still the case that it's by far the minority and what is what has been the the large consensus of the church has been that hell is conscious eternal eternal misery so mm-hmm. Uh, the burden of proof is is on them now. If they can meet that burden of proof, uh, you know, and that, that's what they're all about. That's the whole idea of rethinking hell. Is we we need to look at this stuff again, and 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 we can meet the burden of proof. So first first point is I don't I don't think they've made their case yet. Um, mm. They they may make it yet, but I don't think they have. And secondly, I'm just very dubious of the whole idea uh, that God annihilates because it basically means uncreating. Uh, I, I I don't think God does that. Um, I, I, I find that dubious. And again, I, I don't think it solves the problem in anything like the annihilationist suggests it does if you're talking about the matter of you know evil permanently marring the universe because, look, you've got the memory of these people mm-hmm. and their irrevocable loss that will always be part of, 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 of eternity. So again, unless God just obliterates the memories... You will know that you know beloved person was simply destroyed forever mm-hmm. with no hope of ever of ever being saved. Uh, that doesn't strike me as not now again a, a big part of you know what motivates annihilationism is you know the, the traditional picture of hell as this literal torture chamber you know the worst possible misery mm-hmm. and so the alternative is is eternal torture chamber versus annihilation annihilationism may well be preferable but if you don't have to hold that picture of hell which uh, most uh, people don't hold that view today uh, I think annihilationism loses lots of lots of its uh, lots of its motivation so I, I, I just uh, I, I think there are more uh, morally satisfactory ways to make sense of hell Without taking uh, annihilationism, which I do think is a significant departure from the tradition. Again, 
with the caveat that uh, there may be uh, there may be elements of this in the fathers that I had previously not recognized. Well, I'm going to go a little bit early here because the next question, I think it, it does touch on something that you were just saying here, but since it's a big one, I'm going to go ahead and remind everyone that right now you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Dr. Jerry Wars from Houston Baptist University. We're talking about his book, Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. But if you're listening next week, and I hope you are, we're going to have David Marshall coming on, and he's going to be talking about his book, how Jesus passes the outsider test. It's a, it's a response to a certain uh, cowboy hat wearing atheist in Indiana who would probably love for me to tell you his name. Now, moving on, we we're going to be asking <laughs> Doctor Morris this question here. You were talking about uh, the idea of hell as an eternal torture chamber where you're going to be burnt forever and things of that sort. And he said many uh, many Christians really don't hold this view. That would be news, I think, it seems to, a lot of the non-Christian audience that seems to think this is what hell is. But if hell isn't an eternal fiery torture chamber, first off, why not? And second off, what is it? Well, I, I think there's very good reason to read that language about the fire metaphorically. And in fact, uh, this this debate about how to read this goes clear back to the Church Fathers. In fact, St. Augustine you know, says, even in his day, uh, there's lots of dispute over whether the fire is literal, whether, and again, another image there that is used to describe hell, it's where the worm does not die. Um, and Augustine said, some people take the worm and the fire as both literal, some people take them both as metaphorical, some people take the fire as literal, but the worm is metaphorical, and so on. So, th- so this, this debate goes clear back to the fathers. Uh, so it's not the case that Christians have always taken the fire to be literal by any stretch of the imagination. Lots of, lots of uh, fathers and indeed classic, uh, other classical theologians have not. And I would simply say that, that most people today do not take the fire to be, to be a, literal, a literal kind of a fire. It's an image of misery. It's, a, it's an image of unhappiness. It's an image of a, of a kind of a burning frustration mm. uh, and the like. And indeed, um, uh, some of the images of hell, if you take them literally, simply would be inconsistent. So, so hell is described in some places as a, a place of outer darkness, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also described as, as a fire. Well, you can't have both darkness, perfect darkness, outer darkness, and a literal fire, unless, of course, it's you know a fire that's invisible or something or something like that. In which case, it wouldn't be anything like fire as we know it. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the kinds of reasons lots of people have have been inclined to think that that it's metaphorical. Um, now, I I. Um, I, uh, I I find it fascinating in the Book of Revelation, and I, I ran this uh, by uh, uh, one of my one of my former colleagues and friends, Robert Mulholland, a New Testament scholar who's written mm. commentary on the Book of Revelation. Uh, it, it's it's interesting that uh, the, the fire and the water, the water of life, both of them are are connected, as I point out in in my book, with the throne uh, of the Lamb. And so the, the suggestion may here be this. It's how we respond uh, to the to the love of God and the glory of the Lamb. Uh, uh, that is what determines whether we experience it as a fire, a painful mm. fire, or as a a, a fountain, uh, uh, a river of life that, that flows with life and vitality and brings refreshing uh, to our souls. So, God and his love and his glory are the same. The difference is how we respond to it. It's how we open our hearts to that love 
And if we open our hearts to it, uh, it will be to us the very water of life. If we close our hearts to it, it will be like a burning fire. So mm -hmm. I, I give the image uh, of, um, I give an, an analogy in the book. Uh, imagine imagine um, a son who is estranged from his father, but nevertheless is dependent upon him, needs his father to, to take care of him and, you know, pay for his uh, bills and the like. So he's forced to live under the same roof with his father, but he, he, he hates his father. His father loves him, but he hates his father. Okay, so you've got closeness right there in terms of proximity, but they're completely alienated in terms of relationship. And so having to live under the roof with his father would for him be an experience of misery. The, the very love of his father would, would for him be experienced as miserable because he will not open his heart to receive that love and to reciprocate that love. So that I think is, is, is perhaps what is suggested in the notion of hell fire. It's the hardness of heart uh, that refuses the love of God and experiences that love consequently is miserable, not unlike the son living under the same roof with his father. Yeah, I've actually told people that <clears throat> lately my view of heaven and hell has been maybe for the past year or maybe even a little bit longer has that uh, heaven and hell could actually be the exact same place, but that those who love God are just enjoying it because you can't escape God. He's everywhere and they're in yeah. love there. But those who've hated God, they're in hell. They hate it. Right, right. Ex ex exactly, exactly. So so the notion of separation, um, th there does seem to be some kind of separation uh, in between heaven and hell uh, in 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 uh, the book of Revelation. So uh, I'm not sure how to, how to think about that in terms of physical proximity because we will have bodies, resurrected bodies and the like. Mm -hmm. Um, but I certainly think everybody will be in the presence of God in that sense you said, because again, you can't you can't escape the presence. God is everywhere, and God's love is everywhere. And uh, those who who refuse it and harden themselves against it, uh, as you said, I think will experience it as a miserable thing. Yeah, you know, since you talked about the resurrection being in bodies, I'd like to have us get something also on funeral faux pas that often take place. Because I'm thinking of. <laughs> Two funerals right now. One was one that I did for my grandmother, in fact, when she passed away. And I was one of three pastors assigned to speak that evening. And her pastor got up and said, Won't you know, right now she is experiencing the power of a resurrection. And I'm oh, just right there, and I'm thinking, I'm sorry, Pastor, I'm looking at that. That sure looks like her body down there. Maybe yeah, it's just it me. sure does. And then I went to the funeral of an aunt of mine, maybe a few months ago and the pastor was just flubbing it I thought all about the sermon and then towards the end he said and then that we have that same hope that Paul did that he spoke about in First Thessalonians 4 the great hope and I'm saying yes and I'm developing a hope right now and he says, and then he says that we will see our loved ones again in heaven Boom, there goes my hope right down there. I mean, what is going on when we have these statements at funerals that we seem to overlook resurrection? Right, right, right. And, and again, uh, it, it's, it's often not unlike the attitude of some people who want to act like we're in heaven now. Yeah. And it, it, it simply fails to come to terms with the fact that we live in a fallen world. The resurrection has not yet taken place. Heaven has not yet come to earth. And, and in fact, I, I find it very striking that that beautiful passage in, in Revelation 21 that talks about he will wipe every tear away from their eyes, there will be no more sorrow, no more death, right? 
Okay, the fact that that is a future promise uh, is is reminding us. Look, death is still on the on the loose in this world now. Death is still a reality. Sorrow is still a reality. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so even though uh, the traditional Christian view, which I affirm, is that those who die, their souls will be with 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 God in the intermediate period as we await the future resurrection and the coming of heaven to earth. But we're not yet resurrected. The fullness of heaven has not yet come. Okay, so we're in the presence of God in what you might call a you know, preliminary heaven, intermediate heaven, something like that, or purgatory, as we're going to talk about uh, in, in, in a few minutes here. Uh, but, but the fullness of heaven only happens when we're resurrected and heaven has come to earth. And that hasn't happened yet. And so uh, I think people uh, don't really deal with, with death. In fact, I was at... Um, I was at a conference uh, a week or so ago at Baylor. Uh, it was the Wilkin Colloquium, which is an ecumenical conference, and I was one of the invited speakers. And, and one, of the, um, one of the speakers made the point that, that we need to recover serious Christian funeral practices, which takes death seriously, mm-hmm. you know, which allows us to mourn, to properly recognize you know, that, that, that uh, death is the enemy, right? And, right. and not simply rush from death straight into heaven when it's not here yet. We're still waiting on it. And, mm-hmm. and we have a hope. We, we, we anticipated it and, and, and a sure hope. But, uh, you know, the time when the tears are wiped away and death is no more, it's not yet. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that uh, body lying there in the coffin is a vivid reminder that the last enemy is still on the, is still on the loose. Now, when we're talking about hell also, one other objection we could bring up is, what about people who have never heard the gospel? Isn't it unfair for God to just consign them all to hell? Oh, I, I think it is, Nick. And uh, uh, I, this is one of the things that I've been arguing for for some time, starting with my hell book and my heaven book, my purgatory book, and now the most recent one, Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. Um, I, 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 I think it's, it's well nigh impossible to make sense of and defend the goodness and, and perfect love of God if persons who've never had a chance to hear the gospel are simply consigned to hell. Now, if you're a Calvinist who thinks that God simply predestines some to hell, not others, uh, you know, you may have no problem with it. But what's interesting is there are many Arminians who have a view that is virtually the same, even though they don't say God predestines people to hell in the same way Calvinists do. It's, it's, ver- it's equivalent because many people are born in places and live in places where they never hear the gospel, and that inevitably on this view, consigns them to damnation if you have to have explicit faith in Christ in this life in order to be saved. So, if you take seriously the idea that God truly loves all persons, if you take seriously the idea that God is not willing that any should perish, if you take seriously the claim that His mercy endures forever, then I think you have every reason to think that God will give everybody a full uh, uh, opportunity. In fact, what I've I've called optimal grace, that God Mm -hmm. will give everybody uh, the best chance to be saved. He will do everything he can to elicit a positive response to grace short of overriding their freedom. So, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm, in, I'm inclined very much to believe that uh, you've got the hold to some kind of a notion of post-mortem evangelism uh, and like. Now, what I find interesting, you know, is that some people uh, argue that God gives everybody some chance to be saved, but the point of the matter uh, of, of this opportunity uh, is not really to save these people, but only to vindicate God's justice when he sends them to hell. So the picture is what, what I call minimal grace, <clears throat> as opposed to optimal grace. So everybody gets 
some chance. And so, so um, one of the theologians I discuss in, in, in my recent book holds this view that God gives everybody at the moment of death an opportunity to believe. But on this guy's view, if you're not chosen, if you're not one of the elect, you're not going to respond to it. But the very fact that you have the chance, even though you, 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 know, you wouldn't respond to it, still justifies God in damning you forever. So again, the point is simply give people enough grace to hang themselves. Mm -hmm. Give people enough opportunity to justly send them to eternal hell. Well, I think that's just radically at odds with, with the picture of God you know, who uh, is not content with the 99 sheep, who is out looking for that one, who, who rejoices over sinners who repent. He really wants to save people. So, so, so the fundamental question really comes down to this. Do we think God really wants to save people, or is his only concern to vindicate his justice in damning people, and therefore gives them at least some chance so he can damn them with some sense of justice? Well, I'm sure again the Pope's more than evangelism a little bit more when we talk about purgatory. But let's also ask another question. What about, for instance, babies, small children, and people who have real insufficient mental growth to understand such issues? And with the thing with babies, some people will say, well, if babies automatically go to the throne of God, then why would we condemn abortion since that just gets more people to heaven? Right. Well, in fact... Um Bertrand Russell alleges, uh, and I don't, I'm not sure about the historical basis of this, but Bertrand Russell, you know, says oh, the Spaniards uh, used to baptize babies and then and then slaughter them in order to send them straight to heaven. And he said, uh, no Christian has a good reason to argue against this practice. I mean, uh, guarantee salvation, you know, by by murdering infants, right? Infanticide is is the sure route to heaven. Well, I think that's a crazy idea, uh, and in fact, I reject the common view that dying early guarantees salvation. Okay, what God requires of everyone is faith in Christ. What God requires of everyone is, is, is faith in His Son. So nobody sort of gets a pass from faith by being killed early or dying early or some such thing as that. So what I would suggest, and again, you, you speculate here, and this is what everybody has to do. I mean, anyone who takes a position on this is speculate. Nobody's, you know, you, you can just say, well, I have no idea. But if you're going to take a position... You got to speculate, and what I think makes the most sense is that is that infants will grow up uh, in the afterlife. Uh, they will they will themselves be faced with the claims of Christ and and have the same opportunity to express faith in Christ that anybody else will. So uh, uh, there are no babies in heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And what I simply mean, everybody in heaven will be mature in Christ. What heaven is about is a perfected relationship with Christ. And you can't have a perfected relationship with Christ as a you know as a as a two year old or a one year old or a one day old, right? Uh -huh. Okay, so so I would I, I think that uh, the most reasonable thing to think is that all persons, regardless of when they die, will grow up if they have not already done so, face the claims of Christ, and will either exercise faith in Christ and be saved, or will reject Him. Well, you might have got into this earlier when, with uh, how people respond to God. But wouldn't it make more sense to just send everyone to heaven? Um, I'm not sure what you mean when you say just send everybody to heaven. Yeah, I mean, why, why have hell at all? Why not just have be when everyone dies, you know, they can just go to heaven? Why have hell? Instead of... Well, well, well hell, because, because heaven is by definition a perfected relationship with God. 
Mm-hmm. It's a relationship in which we love God perfectly. We return to love. So God loves us perfectly. Mm-hmm. But heaven is about our returning that love and our being transformed so that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you can't, heaven is, you can't just sort of like put people in a place, i.e., you know, and this is sort of the idea, you know, it, it's just like it's a location, you know. So you put someone in this location and they will be in heaven. Well, you can't be in heaven simply by being put in a location. Your heart has to be transformed, right? right. And, and it kind of goes back to this music thing again that you were talking about a while ago. So let's just take that as an analogy. Uh, for someone who doesn't like music and has no pure appreciation for music, they can be in the presence of the most beautiful music there is, but if they've got no heart for it, no ear for it, no love for it, they won't enjoy it. Okay, so God's perfect righteousness, holiness, goodness, and, and love is the same thing. It's the ultimate example. Our hearts have to be attuned to the love of God. We have to love God in order to enjoy Him and being in being His be in His presence. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Newman, I think, made the statement. Uh, maybe, I, I'm not sure it was him, but I think it was him who said, uh, "Hell would be heaven would be hell to an irreligious man." Mm-hmm. And C.S. Lewis makes the same point in The Great Divorce when he has these characters from hell who go to heaven, and they're given the opportunity to stay. And, of course, the obvious commonsensical uh, thought would be, oh, gee, people in hell have a chance to go to heaven. Well, of course, they're going to all jump at the chance to stay. But, of course, what Lewis depicts with such psychological emotional brilliance is, for a number of, of uh, reasons... These people, most of them, don't want to stay. They're not happy there. They're not comfortable. And and he illustrates this by, you know, saying the, the their feet are hurt by the grass. The grass cuts their feet. It's painful to their feet. Uh, they're not substantial enough. They're not fit to be in heaven, right? And so consequently, they don't enjoy it, mm-hmm. right? So only by becoming substantial, by becoming transformed, and they're promised, if you stay here, you will harden up. You will thicken up, and then you will positively love to roughen the grass, it will be an absolute delight, but in your current state, it's painful to you. You've got to undergo that transformation. So God can't just like put you there if that requires on our parts a free response to his love whereby we become the kind of persons who love him and genuinely delight in his presence, delight in his love, delight in his goodness, and so on. You know, let's uh, give one more good question. Here, at least I hope it's a good one. That a lot of Christians, when someone wrongs us, we know we should want forgiveness and seek to forgive them. But at the same time, there's a desire for justice too, and we see this constantly in the Psalms. That the psalmist wants God to judge your enemy. Now, yeah. ultimately, that justice can wind up being hell. Is is it really wrong for us to want that justice if we know that it could even end up in hell? Um, I I think I think again that there's 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 something that goes beyond justice, and I think what the Christian wants, and again when we get to talking about purgatory, I think this is what brings these two truths together. Justice is about coming to terms with the truth. Justice about is about coming to terms with the reality of the evil that is done. Okay, so so Christianity requires us by virtue of repentance to come to terms with this truth, but the ultimate desire would be come to terms with this truth in a way that leads to repentance and transformation. Mm-hmm. So, so I, 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 would, I would think that, that what, is, what is most desired for holy love 
is for the truth to be dealt with, the truth to honestly be faced, the honest repentance uh, to take place, uh, uh, rather than simply uh, a punishment of an impenitent person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if a person is impenitent, yes, but, but a loving person would want the person to repent, to come to terms with the truth, not to fight it, to open their hearts and to be transformed by it. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point before we move on to talk about purgatory that everything we do here, it's really listener-supported. We are here planning a great garden, I hope, of apologetics and scholarship. And if you're reaping the benefits of this garden, I hope you'll partake in the harvest as well, of planting, of getting the seeds going out there helping us to keep this ministry going the best we can. And the best way to do that is by donating to us and supporting us that way. Now, if you go to my webpage at deeperwaters.ddns.net, you'll find a link on the side under Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click that link, you'll go to the work to the website of Risen Jesus. Have you made a mistake? No. The link is working just fine. What you do is you click on the link and you make the donation and then you email me or you email Debbie Lacona and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. Then we will get your donation and it will go to us. We will get every penny and it will be tax deductible. That's why we do it through Risen Jesus so you can give that nice little tax break. And then there's also on the Amazon store, we've got, you can uh, go and buy books that we talk about on the podcast. And yes, I still need to update that, so I am going to be adding Dr. Wallace's book on there when I get around to updating it. But if you hear a book on, hear about a book on the show and say, hey, I'd like to go and buy that, why not buy it through the podcast link? And you're buying it for the same price, and we get a little bit of a donation from it. So you get to, you get to get a great book. And you get to support a grid ministry. And then, of course, if you're on Amazon, I have ebooks for sale as well. Uh, the latest one that I'm particularly pleased with is my book on the Apostles' Creed, a creed for the ages, looking at the, what the creed says and what it means. And then there's a book that I co-wrote with my ministry partner called uh, Defining Inerrancy, which is largely a response to the charges that were raised against my father-in-law and the, how inerrancy should be looked at today in a way that can be defended much more easily and I think it's also truer to the message of the Bible entirely. Now, Dr. Walls, do you have any organization you'd like people to support or donate to? Well, Nick, you you were talking about all the great stuff happening at Houston Baptist University with Mm -hmm. uh, advancing the Christian truth claims, uh, you know, Houston Baptist University would be a great place uh, for any donors who care about these issues. So what website do they go to? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, uh, Nick, but uh, I, if, you, if you simply click on Houston Baptist University, I'm sure you could, you could find uh, the answer to that. Okay, and I just did a quick web search. The website is hbu.edu, so you all go there and you'll find a way to donate there. Now, let's start talking about purgatories. It's going to be an interesting topic. Now, I'll say this for listeners to start. I'm not totally convinced on purgatory yet, and I don't think Dr. Wallace would want me to be convinced immediately, but I do think it's an interesting... Purgatory takes time, Nick. That's yeah. the way it is. 
Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it's an interesting topic, and I will say this, and I think this is something that definitely pleased Dr. Wars when I said in my review. It does, the, top, the discussion itself does make you take sanctification much more seriously, and that's the important. Um, Dr. Wars, when I first heard about you in the defending of purgatory and such, you know, I was saying, hmm, he must be a Roman Catholic. But you're not. You're a Protestant defending purgatory. What's going on with this? Yeah, Nick, and in fact, uh, one of the books that I'm, I'm going to be writing uh, shortly is this book I'm co-authoring called Why I'm Not a Roman Catholic. So yes, I'm a Protestant uh, who, who believes in who believes in purgatory, and uh, I, I think I think the loss of this doctrine is really one of the unfortunate casualties of the Reformation, which, of course, I think was overall a great thing and a, and a much needed thing. But what was really unfortunate is the way the doctrine of purgatory had been corrupted in the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation. Um, and, and there's two fundamentally different ways of thinking about the doctrine of purgatory, two different models fundamentally, and I explore these um, in, in, my, in my writings. You have the satisfaction model, and then you have the sanctification model. Now, the mm. satisfaction model basically says this. Purgatory is about satisfying the justice of God. So any sins for which you've not done proper penance, you have to go to purgatory to pay a debt of justice, to satisfy the justice of God. Now, mm -hmm. the other view of purgatory, the other model, and uh, in Roman Catholic theology, it's, it's, it's often been a blend of both of these to some degree with one predominating over the others at various times. The other, the other model of purgatory is the sanctification model, and it's not at all in this case about about satisfying some kind of a debt of justice or you know getting a pound of flesh to put it most crudely uh, by God. It is rather simply a matter of God continuing and completing the sanctification process that has begun in this life. Now the original emphasis in the doctrine of purgatory was on the sanctification side. In fact, if you think about the the etymology of the word purgatory, comes from the word purge. Mm. So purging is about cleansing, and of course the New Testament is full of language about cleansing us from our sins and our, you know, uh, uh, taking an, uh, uh, an active role in cooperating with God and cleansing the imperfections from our sins uh, of our sins. Uh, it can also be taught and thought of in terms of a disease. You think about a disease, and your body needs to be cleansed or purged of a mm. disease, right? So purgatory is very much a positive notion of God getting out of our lives, cleansing from our lives, healing us from things that are destructive to us, that keep us from experiencing the happiness and joy and satisfaction for which we were created. So, mm -hmm. if, if you think about purgatory in sanctification terms, it is perfectly compatible with a Protestant understanding of soteriology. Justification uh, is still by faith. Uh, justification is what puts us right with God, forgives us of our sins. But forgiving sins does not deal with the deeper issue of sinful dispositions. Those need to be purged. Those need to be corrected. I mean, the kind of sinful attitudes and disposition that lead to the acts of sin for which we need forgiveness. You can't simply forgive a disposition away. It needs a different kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. So purgatory, as I understand it, is about completing that sanctification process straightening out those crooked kinks and twisted uh, areas of our lives that uh, lead us to, to perform the acts for which we need forgiveness and justification. Mm -hmm. Now, some people real quick look and say, well, you know, you're talking about how we, we need to get back to this, and some people say, well, look, 
we're sort of scriptura people. It should have never been in here to begin with, because we don't see anything in the Bible that talks about purgatory at all. We just see heaven and hell. Right. Yeah. If if you go to uh, your you know your concordance to find the word purgatory, you're not going to find it. Of course, you're not going to find the word Trinity if you go to your concordance uh, and find it either. Right. So right. the doctrine of Trinity uh, is is a great example of a doctrine that is absolutely fundamental to the faith. That is an implication of what things that are clearly taught in Scripture. It, it, it's a, it's an inference of things that are clearly taught in Scripture. So I clearly believe in Trinity and think it's fundamental bedrock Christian doctrine. Now, purgatory is similar. Now, I would certainly not say it's as clearly inferred or implied in Scripture as Trinity is. Certainly not that. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's reasonably inferred by things that are, that are clearly taught in Scripture. So that's why I put it forward as a theological proposal. I don't put it forward as a dogma. I don't put it forward you know, as a doctrine that every Christian should believe in. But here's the point. Everybody needs a doctrine of purgatory. Okay, and Protestants have their own version of the doctrine of purgatory. They just typically think it happens really quickly and painlessly. So the typical Protestant picture is this. When you die, God, as it were, sort of zaps you and instantaneously perfects you and fits you for heaven. So most Protestants would recognize that, hey, we need to be cleansed. We need to be purified. Nothing impure, nothing unclean can enter heaven. Mm -hmm. And most people at the time of their death are not perfectly sanctified. So how does that happen? Again, the Protestant answer is God, by a unilateral act of sovereign grace, simply zaps you and and perfects you. Now, if on the other hand, and again, what I suggest is this, you should endorse the doctrine of purgatory that is most consistent with your overall soteriology. Mm -hmm. Since everybody's got to have a doctrine of purgatory, okay, what account of purgatory is most consistent with the way you understand salvation? Now, if you believe that God requires our cooperation, our free cooperation. If you believe that, that God requires us to cooperate in our sanctification, and, and, and I noted, interestingly, that uh, Calvinists themselves, Reformed people, typically emphasize that it, when it comes to sanctification, mm-hmm. God does indeed work with our cooperation. Okay, So mm-hmm. in not justification, they don't want to hold that, but in sanctification, mm-hmm. they hold our cooperation is essential. Now, if, on the other hand, you're a Wesleyan uh, or an Arminian, you think even more so uh, God requires our cooperation, our free response, even at, for, for justification to take place. So the point mm-hmm. is that insofar as you think God works mm-hmm. with our cooperation, elicits our response, enables our response, but does not determine our responses, insofar as you think that, then some kind of a doctrine of purgatory makes perfect sense. So if you think God requires our cooperation, he elicits our love, he elicits our obedience, he elicits our worship, does not simply determine it, and we've made it a certain way down the road of sanctification, but not all the way, then it makes sense to think that God will continue uh, to work on us to uh, perfect the uh, the process uh, uh, in the intermediate life. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I was wondering about as I was reading, well, since you do say you know, salvation by grace through faith, what would you say, since we have to be sanctified, to the person who doubts their salvation? Because I, I meet many Christians who doubt their salvation. Not once have I met one whose doubt I take seriously enough to think, yeah, dude, I, I'm sorry, you're out, you just got to repent right now. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Um, could clarify that for me a little bit. I, I, I think I hear what you're saying, but... but Yeah, I mean, some people are looking and say, geez... I struggle with such and such in sin, and I think because I struggle with this sin, it's a sign that 
I'm not very saved, and besides, on top of that, God can feel distant at many of those times when we receive. I've had them email me several times. They say, how can I be sure, how can I know that God has forgiven me, that I am being sanctified? Right, 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 right. Okay, so, so, and, and that's, sort of, that's sort of the difference between, between justification, right, and, and sanctification. Justification is sort of, uh, you know, an, an all or nothing thing. You're either justified or you're not. Right. Uh, at least initially, right? Uh-huh. Okay, but, but sanctification is a matter of process, and so I think what, what happens is this. When people do not experience any sense of, of, of progress in their sanctification, that then throws doubt on the, their confidence they're justified. Is that, is that kind of what, 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 what seems yeah, to be? Yeah, I, I think that seems to be the case, and some people just say, you know, maybe I didn't say the right words or do the right motions or things like that. Right, right, and uh, again, again, uh, that's uh, often a kind of a magical view of justification that it that it has to do with saying the right words, as you put it, having a certain feeling uh, yeah. or some such thing as that. And uh, and uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, faith in Christ alone is what justifies us, and indeed, faith in Christ is also what sanctifies us. Mm-hmm. Right, because it is as we exercise faith as an ongoing relation with Christ that he carries forward the work of sanctification. Now, it's really interesting that um, that uh, the, the Arminian tradition and the Calvinist tradition, both of them have interesting doctrines of assurance that are remarkably similar, addressed to people who go through these periods of doubt when they wonder whether they're really saved or whether they're really in a right relationship with God. And what, and what is interesting is both of them encourage believers uh, to, to uh, uh, experience assurance Precisely by looking at the fruit uh, of the Spirit in their lives, looking at those uh, those signs of sanctification, those signs of growth. So I I, I think one of the most important things uh, that, that a believer can do is take seriously the doctrine of sanctification, um, and 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 uh, work to see the 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 fruit of the Spirit grow in their lives. And again, when I say work, I don't mean we accomplish it. But I mean, allow God to carry forward His work of sanctification. God, after all, wants to make us holy. Yeah. God, after all, wants to make us like Himself. God, after all, wants to love us and wants us to love Him in return. He's taken the initiative, and it is simply up to us to open our hearts to follow Him and to allow Him to carry this work forward in our lives. So I think the point is this. Insofar as we grow in sanctification and holiness, I think that does indeed confirm and strengthen our sense of assurance. So, so there's definitely a, a connection there that, that, that you put your finger on. Uh, and insofar as we neglect sanctification, insofar as we're indifferent to it, insofar as we simply disobey God and, and have no concern for it, uh, I think that's naturally when we feel a, a lack of assurance in our lives. So, so growth in holiness and growth in sanctification does, I think, strengthen and uh, help reassure our hearts during those times of doubt. Usually when these people come to me, one of the things I want to say is, look, the very fact that you're concerned about is that you want to be in the presence of God, that tells me you're one of His. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, so someone someone who sins with a sense of, uh, of indifference and uh, doesn't care about damaging the relationship... That's that that that's that's when you got something to be concerned about. But precisely because you 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 have this sense of concern, that itself reflects a love that you don't want to offend the the, the love and goodness of God, and you care about the relationship. And that's that's a very good sign. I agree. 
what about, for instance, I, I've talked with many men who struggle with this, and even many married men, that it's especially, I think, a lot among single men. You'll meet single men, I'm using this one sentence as an example, but you can point to me and who say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I struggle with pornography, and I know I shouldn't look at it, but geez, I just go and I keep coming back, and I, and I have to try and talk to them. I usually set up myself as an accountability partner for them and say, hey, well, let's talk about this regularly and message me anytime you think you're struggling or every time you think you've screwed up. And we say, how can it be that I really love God, but I keep falling back into this sin over and over? Yeah, yeah, that, that, I, that, that's a that's a great question, and certainly one that, as you as you rightly note, a lot of people struggle with today. And uh, 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 I, I think you're dead on when you talk about the importance of accountability. You know, John Wesley made the observation that that uh, that uh, we are social, but by nature, in terms of a Christianity, nobody's a solitary Christian. Mm-hmm. So no one is capable on his own. To simply, you know, uh, go forward in sanctification, we need the encouragement. We need the help of the larger body of Christ, and accountability partners is is, is a great way is a great way to to embody that. Embody again the the, mm-hmm. the body of Christ to participate in the body of Christ rather mm-hmm. than uh, a lone member of the body of Christ. And and you know, C.S. Lewis has some really great advice on this. You know, he talks about the difficulty of of achieving. Sexual chastity doesn't particularly mention pornography, but it would certainly fall under the same umbrella. Yeah, Augustine was the one who said, "Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet." Yeah, but not yet, and 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 that's the question. And and again, uh, what what I think what I think Augustine's prayer there discloses and realizes and, and shows is he thought he wanted to be more pure and holy than he really wanted to be. He was kidding himself and mm-hmm. kind of deceiving himself uh, uh, and the like. And, and C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, points points to this to this reality. We have to really want to 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 make highway. We have to really want to make progress. And so uh, the fact that we the fact that we continue to repent shows you know some desire to make progress. And uh, you know when we when we sincerely want to be healed of these kinds of things, we will not be saying you know make me holy, but not yet. We will be saying God, I want this now. God. Yeah. I'm serious. I mean, uh, I, I, I want to be cleansed of this. And and if someone, you know, struggles with this but refuses any kind of accountability, that's a pretty good sign. They don't really want to be cleansed of it. If they really want to be cleansed of it, uh, mm-hmm. then the accountability, they will welcome the accountability. They will welcome the help. They will welcome the, the, the strength that is provided by, by the brothers in Christ and uh, uh, will seek uh, all the help they can get to make headway in, 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 in holiness. You know, something else I think we can talk about and is when we're seeking holiness and we're seeking something good, that sometimes we can struggle with our motives. We can look and say, if I'm serving God, am I doing it for pure reasons and such? And one analogy that I've used to explain this, and my wife knows the story works, so I've talked about because when we lived in Charlotte, there was a time that the pastor's wife at our church picked her up to take her to a women's conference. And while she was going, I thought, you know, I'm going to surprise her, I think. And our apartment was really messy, so I went through and started cleaning the whole apartment, everything I could, which actually took me about four hours to do. About halfway That's through... That's love sacrifice there, yeah, Nick. It's good. Uh, about, well, to be fair, I, I, I did have Smallville on the TV at the same time, so <laughs> that, that was, that's also signs of sanctification, by the way. Absolutely. And... Uh, so about halfway through, a couple hours through, I'm thinking about how Allie's going to respond when she gets home. And says, 
Oh my gosh, she is going to love this. She is going to be so pleased. You know, I bet she's just going to want to come and take me right then and there. And then all of a sudden, for, wait a second, wait a second. What if that's the real reason I've been doing this? What if I, I don't care about pleasing her? I just care about getting what I want. Now, there's a problem yet, and you, Renek, that's nonsense because that wasn't really on your mind until just a few moments ago. But what I've told people, and maybe, you, and you can comment on this, see what you think, is that when we're looking at our service for God and the service for the people we love in our lives, our motives are rarely going to be 100% pure and crystal. But I say what we should do is we have we know the right thing we're supposed to do. We do it anyway and pray, God help me purify my motives. Yeah, that that that, that is a great question. And let's let's go back to what we talked about earlier, though, when we talked about um, the fear of happiness that so many people uh, uh, are afflicted with. Now, one right. of the one of the great uh, one of the great uh, dictums of John Wesley's theology, and again, you can see this in C.S. Lewis, you can see it in other other writers, classical writers as well. Lewis, uh, uh, John Wesley equated holiness and happiness. Right. And so, so here's the point. Okay, insofar as our motives are pure, okay, we truly want to be holy, but we also truly want to be happy. Those are not mm. about, and, and, so, and so to want to be truly happy does not make our motivation impure. It actually helps us purify and intensify our motives if we understand, look, the way I can truly be happy, the way I can truly experience the joy of God in my life is precisely by allowing him to have his way. And so, and so insofar as we have this sneaking suspicion, right, that, you know, uh, obeying God means the end of my happiness. Insofar as we've got this sneaking suspicion, you know, that the real way to be happy is to, is, is to pursue the way of sinfulness. It goes back again to this uh, guy who doesn't want to go to heaven because that's where all the boredom is, right? Right. Okay, we're not going to be inclined to really want to obey. But insofar as we believe God really is good, insofar as we believe God really desires my well-being because he's a God who, 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 who loves me, who's crazy about me. He wants me to be happy. If that's what we really believe, then we're going to be motivated to say, I want to do what God's want, God's will is. That's what motivates us to do the will of God when we really are convinced that he's a good God who mm -hmm. desires our true well-being and our true flourishing. Mm -hmm. you know, I also think it's important when you were talking about the doubt of salvation that we don't look to our feelings at times because that, well, that is a great danger we all have. And yeah, I, so feelings are so fickle. They're so subject yeah. to, you know, my team lost the game last mm -hmm. night, to the weather's bad, to... Yeah. I God, didn't sleep you know, well, things like didn't that. didn't sleep well. There are so many things that can confuse and distort our feelings, and that's why we need to have our, our faith rooted, you know, rock solid in, in the promises of God. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I mean, I don't hold to baptismal regeneration, but I think baptism is important. We should all be baptized, and... I was at a gym once, and I was in the pool, and there was a lady who I was, who I was kind of like discipling a bit, and I think she was very experienced, and she came in and said, so, uh, you got baptized? And yeah. I said, so after your baptism, did you feel any difference? I said, yes, yes, I sure did. I felt cold, and I felt wet. <laughs> 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 and, and, I mean, C.S. Lewis said, I think, when good feelings come our way, it's nice, but we can't make a steady diet of them, and we need to be rooted in the scripture for when those times come. 
Absolutely, and and again, you know, we 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 still live in a fallen world. We mm-hmm. still live in a world where where we struggle, and mm-hmm. you know, say a, a bad night's sleep or a bit of bad news or whatever illness can completely you know upset our, mm-hmm. our perception of things. Yeah, but it, it's at the same time, it's okay to feel negative sometimes, okay. and we and we should. I mean, if uh, if yeah. I have. And we need to be utterly honest when we feel that way and not pretend, you know, everything is wonderful all the time when it's not. Yeah, yeah. we're not kidding ourselves and uh, we're living in a delusion yeah. if we pretend that way. If I if I had a loved one who I just heard news that, hey, uh, your loved one died here or something, I'm not going to be, oh, joy, joy, suffering's come my way. Yes, I, I need okay. to grieve. I mean, Paul said we grieve, but not like those who don't have hope. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, let's talk some about this idea of post-mortem evangelism, because this is really one that's going to make a lot of people wonder, okay, what's going on here? Because, you know, after we die, most of us think, we die, that's it. There is no other chance for salvation. Right, right. Well, as I said uh, earlier, I think the question comes back to this. Do we truly believe God is not willing that any should perish, but that all Mm -hmm. should come? Repentance. Uh, do, do, do we really believe that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Do we also believe that it's utter, utterly obvious that many people have not had much of an opportunity to respond to the gospel? Well, mm-hmm. again, I can see this. I think God can see it even more and is even more aware of it and even more desirous that they have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So the question is this. I mean, could God give them an opportunity? Is this beyond the power of God? So, so I, I pose two fundamental questions uh, in that chapter, that last chapter of my book where I defend post-mortem evangelism. Could God give everybody a full opportunity? Could God give optimal grace? Mm-hmm. But you have to have a really weak view of, of God's creative resources to think that God couldn't find ways to do this. Mm-hmm. So that's the question. And the second question is, would God do this? Mm-hmm. And that's the question of not God's power, but of his love and his character. Does he genuinely desire, okay, to give... Okay, so, so suppose God knows. If this person over here who, you know, was raised in very, very difficult circumstances, raised, let's say, you know, by uh, uh, a mother who was a crack, you know, addict, you know, or some such thing as that, and whose father was a pimp, you know, who never showed him any love and had no relationship with him, He's raised in this way, has, you know, maybe read a, some tract that someone came to him, but has had no real, real understanding of the gospel, no real uh, positive Christian witness or experience that, that mm-hmm. he's encountered, right? And right. this person dies, let's say, a violent death in a, in, a dr- in a gang war, let's say, on the streets of some big city, right? Right. Now, it's pretty, it's not too hard to see. This person has not had anything remotely like the chance I've had. Mm-hmm. I who have thousands of sermons mm-hmm. was raised by two loving Christian parents and, and taught the gospel from the word you know go mm-hmm. uh, my life okay pretty obvious now here's the question does God lack the resources to give this person the same opportunity of understanding the gospel that I've received seems mm-hmm. to me and the question is would he want to does, does God love this person with mm-hmm. the same part of love that he loves me and he loves you and, and many other Christians who, who who have experienced so many more opportunities to receive the gospel. It seems to me that he clearly does. And so I, I think the answer to both questions is, could he do it? Yes. Would he do it? I think the answer to both those questions is yes. Well, if, you, if you're inclined to think that, 
then I think you're going to find yourself inclined to think that some kind of post-mortem evangelism or opportunity is going to be available. Mm-hmm. Well, what about someone who might say, well, geez, if that's true and God's going to do everything he can to bring someone to him, what reason do I have to go out there and do evangelism? Because God's going to do everything he can anyway. Well, God always uses means. And, uh, you know, in, in the world to come, he'll probably be using means as well. And so the reason we do it, and here's where I, I find myself often quoting a Calvinist. You noted earlier that I'm not a fan of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember reading J.I. Packer's book, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, years ago. And the question is often posed to Calvinists, well, if you think God is predestined who's saved and who's lost, why worry about preaching the gospel? God will, you know, you know, save him if he wills. And, of course, the answer is God determines means as well as ends. That's the Calvinist answer. But the other answer is simply this. Christ told us to preach the gospel. That's one of his clearest commands. And, mm-hmm. and Paul said the love of Christ compels us. So mm-hmm. our job is to preach the gospel. That is our calling. We cannot love Christ. We cannot mm-hmm. obey Christ and neglect to preach the gospel. That's simple. Yeah. So, so we simply have no option if we ourselves are going to love Christ and obey him mm-hmm. and disciples of his. We have no option but to preach the gospel and to take it as people. And moreover, it's a delight, it's a joy, it's a privilege to be God's means. Mm-hmm. doesn't use us, he'll find somebody else. Yeah, one thing I've told people is when it comes to the question of those who've never heard, I think the Bible doesn't really give us a question, an answer to the question explicitly because the Bible right. has already told us our marching orders. Our marching orders are the Great Commission. And there's right. nothing that says, if you fail to do Plan A, here's what Plan B is. No, there's just Plan A, do it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and again, uh, none of us can avoid speculation because, it just mm-hmm. as you said, the Bible doesn't yeah. tell us clearly about the fate of the evangelized. There are various hints mm-hmm. in, you know, in the Scripture, you know, like the famous passage in, in Acts 10 where Peter you know, talks about those you know, uh, the, the Gentiles who uh, follow the truth you know, and the light that God will, uh, God will accept them and the like. So you have various hints along those lines mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the idea of, of God uh, providing means to save people uh, in this wider way goes clear back to some of the church fathers. So it's by no means a novel idea. John Wesley uh, and others have, 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 have held similar views. But uh, you can't avoid speculation. Uh, the Bible simply doesn't answer the question, but you're right. It does make utterly clear what our marching orders are now. Mm-hmm. And of God, we don't really have an option. Well, when it comes also, again, to the post-mortem evangelism thing, what about people who look at a passage like Hebrews 9, where it says, it's pointed a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment thing. Well, you know, judgment comes, that's pretty final. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people uh, squeeze a lot more juice out of that grape than I think uh, is, is really there, Nick. I mean, what does the text say? It says you die once, and it says there's a judgment after death. Now, what it doesn't say is uh, that the state in which you are in at the moment you die settles your eternal fate. Because after all, mm-hmm. we all do believe, or at least most Christians believe, there's an initial judgment, and then there's the final judgment at the end of the world. Right, yeah. and so and so uh, there, there could be an initial judgment, and indeed it doesn't even specify when the judgment happens. It doesn't say it happens instantly after death. It only says after death. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so 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 the idea that the text says so what the text does not say is you die whatever state you are in that determines your eternal fate and you are immediately given that fate the instant after you die. It doesn't say that. It says something much more modest. You die once. 
And after you die, there's a judgment. It doesn't specify when that judgment is, nor the terms of it. Mm-hmm. But do you think there will come a time where there is kind of a period where you've been given a chance and now it's final? Well, I, I think there will be a final judgment, and I think the, the terms of the final judgment remain. But look, what if God says, okay, you're condemned, uh, you're condemned to, to hell for unbelief, and they go to hell. And then what if they find themselves repenting in hell and coming to believe? Mm-hmm. Well, the terms of the judgment will remain. Those who, those who believe are saved, those who don't believe are lost. Mm-hmm. But the, status, the, the person's uh, status could, be, could alter uh, because they cease their unbelief and, and choose to repent and throw themselves on God's mercy. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, I think God's mercy endures forever. I think he always welcomes a penitent sinner. I don't think there's ever a time in which God says, I no longer desire you to repent or, or, would, or would welcome you back. You know, when you were talking about the state of death, I remember the best man at my wedding, he was visiting me a few years ago and hanging back. He passed the church and he saw the sign out front. He said, I laughed my head off when I saw it. And he said, because it said, where death finds you, eternity keeps you. And he thought, I thought immediately that Elvis died on the toilet then. So what does that say about his eternity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a good idea. It's a good, that just goes to show that uh, you should not get your definitive theology from uh, sermon titles uh, on church billboards or whatever. <laughs> now, when you talk about purgatory also, something you said earlier was it is painful. I think you were implying that at least. I'm thinking about the story C.S. Lewis told about God coming to live in us, and we think He's wanting to live in us in a nice, quaint little country cottage and such. Yep. And he starts tearing places down, building new places, and He's making a palace. Uh, it's, if heaven, if purgatory is preparing us for the presence of God, I mean, why would that be painful? Uh, yeah, great, great. Uh, and, and it's interesting you should cite that passage, Nick. I just wrote an essay uh, for a new Four Views of Hell volume on Purgatory in, in which I elaborate some of Lewis's points on this, and I cite that very text. And, and, and what Lewis is suggesting there is this. Uh, in order to make us comfortable, fit for God, he's going to have to take us out of our comfort zone. You know, Right. I have to get down. This is out of my comfort zone, you know, or whatever. Right? We are not currently uh, the, in, in our status, unless we're entirely sanctified and holy, in a comfort zone where we would be perfectly comfortable and happy in the presence of a, of a, of a holy God, right? And, and again, as that parable that Lewis tells illustrates, we've got much more modest kind of uh, pictures of what God is up to. We just want to be forgiven and we want to go to heaven, right? Yeah. But what we don't really understand initially up front is, okay, in order to go to heaven, you have to have heaven opened up in your heart and soul. That means you've got to be changed. And it's not going to you know, just be a little surface uh, changes here and there to touch up you know, a, few, a few minor flaws. There's a thoroughgoing, radical reformation and transformation that I've got to do in your life. You thought I was just you know, building, making a little nice little cottage. Yeah, as you put it, and as Lewis put it, uh, he's, he's building a palace because he intends to live in it. Yep. He, he has prepared us for, for his abode, for he will live and for we will find ourselves happy and comfortable and at, at, at home with him living in us. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that, 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 that takes us out of our comfort zone. And, and I think, you know, in, in many ways it really come, comes back to the old adage that the truth hurts, right? Yeah. And Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And I think the heart of sanctification, was simply put, is just this. It's about coming to terms fully and deeply with the truth about God 
and with the truth about ourselves. And often when we see the truth about ourselves, like Peter, you know, when, when he fell the needs of Jesus and said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the like, we find ourselves uncomfortable when we see the truth about God and we see our lives for what they are in the light of the presence of a holy God. Mm-hmm. And when we really see that, it's unpleasant. It's, it, the truth hurts, mm-hmm. right? But, but, it's a, but it's a hurt that makes us better. It's a hurt that heals, okay? So, so it, it's the kind of pain that is purifying and ultimately cleansing and sanctifying and that ultimately leads to our pleasure. But yeah, the, the, there's certainly some pain along the way uh, of moral transformation and sanctification as mm-hmm. we come to terms with the truth about ourselves and God. Well, Dr. Wallace, this has really been a fascinating interview in many ways. You've gotten into so many topics, and while we don't have a visual going out on these, I can see you on Skype, and I can see you getting excited about a lot of these topics, which is really well, great here. pretty exciting stuff, Nick. I mean, heaven, hell, yeah. and purgatory, that's, that's stuff, bud. Yeah. Well, we, we can't be sure that hell is good stuff, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he, heaven, definitely, and that is something we need to get excited Yeah. Heaven is something we definitely need to get more excited about anyway. But uh, unfortunately, many good things must come to an end. Not all good things do, but this podcast does have to come to an end sometime. So um, if people want to find out more about you, do you have a blog or a website or anybody that can get in touch with you? I do have a website. I think it's I think it's just called jerryowalls.com, I think. Uh, I wouldn't swear to that, but I think that's what it is. But yeah, I do have a website. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, What's a, a, a final message that, and it doesn't look like it's jerrywalls.com. I just like, but if you type in Jerry Walls, I'm, Jerry L. Walls. Okay, but if you type in Jerry Walls, I'm sure you can find it. What's a final message you would like to leave for the default? It's Jerry L. Walls. Yeah. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just did it again, and yes, it, it came up. But what's a uh, final message you would like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, this. I, I think it's really unfortunate that many people um, uh, have, have given so little thought and attention to heaven, hell, and purgatory. It's amazing how many preachers have never preached a serious sermon about these matters. Uh, one, of my, one of my good friends, former colleagues, uh, gave me one of the best compliments about my book, uh, the, the Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory book. He said, reading this book makes me want to preach about heaven. And he's a right. Accomplished Old Testament scholar, and that's what I would like to, to to see. I mean, I mean, we need to recapture this. A lot of people have been shamed out of thinking about it. You know, like pie in the sky and the sweet by and by, like mm-hmm. it's some form of escapism. No, it's not escapism. This is about the deepest truths about reality. And and I would like Christians to recapture the idea that that these vital truths grow out of precisely taking, as I show in the very first chapter, Trinity. You start with Trinity. Ultimate reality is, 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 is the loving relationship with the Trinity. Heaven is about being captured and, and caught up in that. Hell is about uh, refusing it. Purgatory is about the transforming experience of, of, of letting that uh, Trinitarian love transform our hearts and souls and lives. So I would say I, I, I just wish Christians could help uh, totally recapture their story. This is, this is the climax of the story, and too many people have shriveled our story, shrunk it, not done justice to it, by not uh, taking the end of the story serious enough. And again, too often, on the other hand, some people simply trivialized it, sensationalized it with superficial thought. What I would like to see is serious, intelligent engagement with this story that really takes it seriously as a, as a truth claim that is the climax of the Christian story. The book is Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory by Jerry L. Walls. On Amazon right now, it's available in paper, on paperback for fourteen ninety nine. 
And the Kindle version is nine ninety nine. If you want to pick either one of those up, it's a great one to have in your library. Uh, Dr. Ross, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Nick. It's been fun. And I remind everyone that next week we're going to be having on the show David Mosher from China, I believe, at the time. He's going to be talking about his book, How Jesus Passes the Outsider Test, responds to a cowboy hat wearing a hat. A cowboy hat wearing atheist in Indiana who, once again, he'd probably like me to tell you his name. For now, I'm Nick Peters. 